Hello from the newsroom of the Financial Times in London. I'm Katie Martin. Today we're looking at a recent setback in the global effort to protect the Earth's ozone layer from harmful chemicals. Leslie Hook, our environment correspondent, discusses recent evidence that companies in China have been flouting rules banning the use of CFCs. She talks to Steve Monsko and Matt Rigby, authors of a recent ozone report in Nature, and Julian Newman of the Environmental Investigations Agency. A recent research paper in Nature revealed that the banned chemical CFC-11, which destroys ozone in the atmosphere, was still being produced somewhere in East Asia. And subsequently, an on-the-ground investigation in China found factories that admitted to still using this chemical despite the ban. Steve, I'd like to begin with you as lead author of this paper in Nature uh, that revealed this production of CFC-11. How did you first notice this change? Well, Leslie, we have samples that are collected around the world, sent to our lab in Boulder, Colorado. And we analyze those samples to determine concentrations of different trace gases, like you mentioned, up to 40 different trace gases. So we're monitoring the concentration of these trace gases, including CFC-11, essentially monitoring the global concentration of this chemical and others. And we keep track of what we're seeing in the atmosphere fairly closely to understand whether or not what we're seeing is consistent with what we'd expect given things like the Montreal Protocol and the phase-out of global production of this chemical. So in 2013 and 2014, a close look at the measurements that we were making for those years was showing us that the concentration of F11 wasn't decreasing as rapidly as it had been. Right. And for our listeners who may not be aware, the Montreal Protocol was signed in 1987 and agreed to completely phase out CFC production by 2010. That's right. It was originally phased out, that production of CFCs originally phased out earlier in developed countries, and it was in developing countries that that final deadline passed in 2010. Following the publication of your paper in Nature, the Environmental Investigation Agency went on the ground. And Julian, tell me a bit about what you guys found. I mean, you found Chinese factories admitting to you on the record that they're still using this chemical. Yeah, well, EIA has been carrying out investigations into the legal trade in CFCs since the late 90s, and we were aware that the production was supposed to stop in 2010. So when we saw the Nature paper, we were somewhat shocked because we thought we'd seen the back of CFCs. Given our knowledge about the market in China particularly, although the, the paper said East Asia, we had a pretty strong hunch that there would be some connection to China. So we identified some companies through online research that seemed to be offering or trading in CFC 11. We simply reached out to them, pretending to be traders ourselves, had some telephone conversations, met a few of them, and to be frank, it was a snapshot. We didn't have much time, but we contacted 18 companies in total across 10 provinces in China, and every one admitted to using CFC-11. And the percentages they were using for the manufacture of foams they were making ranged between about 70% to 100%. So this, to us, was quite a strong answer to this problem of emerging emissions of CFC-11, that it's still being used despite the fact it was supposed to stop in 2010. Steve, perhaps you can just outline what is the state of the ozone layer and why it's so critical for human life on Earth. Ozone in the higher levels of the atmosphere filters out high-energy radiation that damages skin, it damages biological organisms, cells, damages the DNA why we get a sunburn, that some fraction of the high-energy UV light makes it through the ozone layer down to the surface. And so 
it's very important for all of life on Earth that that ozone layer not be inadvertently or extensively damaged. It was in the mid-1980s that Joe Farman recognized through his measurements over Antarctica, that the ozone layer was undergoing some rather severe depletion. And subsequent to his announcement of the measurements of ozone or the ozone concentrations decreasing over time, other scientific bodies finger-pointed the CFCs as causing a problem. Steve and Matt, you guys are in Switzerland for the meeting of the World Meteorological Association to discuss ozone depletion. Can you tell me a bit about what's been the reaction in the scientific community to these recent revelations? Well, so really here in Switzerland, we're just trying to digest the information that we have from Steve's paper. There hasn't been a a huge amount of additional information in the scientific literature, obviously, in these short timescales. So really, we're just trying to summarize this information in a report which will go to the parties to the Montreal Protocol later this year. I might add, too, that we're here not in response to the paper being published. We're here, we get together in Switzerland once every four years to update the state of the science on ozone depletion to inform all the parties to the Montreal Protocol, or in other words, all the countries around the world, how ozone-depleting substances are changing, whether or not they're changing as expected, and also how ozone measurements and concentrations of ozone are changing over time. For a long time, the Montreal Protocol was considered a real success story. The scientific community identified this problem. The protocol was put into place. CFC production declined. And the ozone layer, I believe you wrote in your papers, has been on track to recover to 1980 levels by the middle of the 21st century. But is that success story under threat now with your latest finding? Well, I think it's important to remember that ozone-depleting gases are still decreasing overall in the atmosphere. And yes, this is a bit of a bump in the road, but we're hoping that we've provided fairly early detection of this unusual trend so that the overall decline in ozone-depleting substances will continue and the ozone layer will heal. But yes, you're right. Overall, the protocol has been successful. It enabled the phase-out of all these ozone-depleting substances, and we've observed the peak and subsequent decline in the atmospheric concentrations of most of the chemicals that cause the problem in response to the protocol and its controls on these gases. Things aren't decreasing as fast as they might, in part because of these enhanced CFC-11 emissions. But CFC-11 concentrations still go down, just not as rapidly as we might have hoped. If this CFC-11 emission goes away reasonably quickly, We expect that the damage that the ozone layer will suffer from them to be fairly small. If they persist, however, if we're not able to get a handle on this issue, the ozone layer could suffer some extensive damage and cause the recovery of the ozone layer to be delayed by maybe a decade in mid-latitudes and by even a longer time over Antarctica. Thank you, Steve. Now, Julian, what happens now? I mean, who enforces violations like the one that you uncovered? Well, I think it's worth pointing out that this problem is not just about the Montreal Protocol, other environmental agreements as well. You can't assume compliance. It's all very well to sit in a room and make an agreement, but you must remain vigilant. You must ensure the global community that things like the Montreal Protocol are properly monitored and implemented. Now, there was a decision to do some more research into this problem because obviously there's more facts to be uncovered. The parties themselves have also got to start looking at their trade and any problems that they might have. And in particular, our results found quite clear that China is a major factor in this problem. 
Um, there's some evidence that China's already been doing some enforcement. Last year, for example, we heard about some unlicensed factories were closed down. So it's really important now that China increases its resources to basically track down these illicit plants that are making CFC-11 and take action to close them down. Because without that kind of penalties and enforcement, the problem won't go away. Because obviously there is a market factor driving this CFC-11 production. There's a lot of demand for it in China and the replacement chemicals have become more expensive. We sent our findings already to the Chinese authorities and we're hopeful that they will take some action and hopefully be able to report back at the Montreal Protocol meeting in November that they've taken steps to close down these illicit plants. And how certain can we be at this stage that China is the main culprit or the only culprit? Steve, in your paper, you just said East Asia and sort of left it at that. What's the degree of certainty, Julian, that China's the only one? Well, from our investigation, we spoke to 18 companies and all of them were using CFC-11 and that was a snapshot. But the way they spoke about the scale of this problem it seems quite large. I mean, it's not like an isolated case. Of course, it's quite a tricky one to pin down because some of the manufacturing locations are quite remote areas, like Inner Mongolia was one place mentioned where these factors are springing up. But clearly there's an increasing use of CFC-11 in China, increasing production. And so I think our findings give quite a strong answer to the puzzle that's been posed by the Nature paper. There might be other factors as well, but I think we can say that new production of CFC-11 is one of the major factors explaining this rise in emissions. As we talked about earlier, CFCs have been considered one of the you know, success stories of climate policy. And what do these recent problems tell us about the challenges for policy controls on other types of greenhouse gases? I mean, what are the lessons that apply to other greenhouse gases beyond CFCs? Well, I think this case is an example of where the Montreal Protocol has functioned well. But of course, one problem with the Montreal Protocol and other conventions as well in the environment sphere is the enforcement aspect of this. You know, who's watching? Who's doing the work to ensure that people are complying? That's normally a national responsibility. So, of course, more support has to be given to countries so they can enforce the rules, whether it's through training or better penalties, better legislation. Because all too often, you know, there's an assumption that environmental agreements are good, people will comply with them. But, of course, for some people, they're business opportunities. They're opportunities to do black market trade and those kinds of things. So I think the fact that this emissions were picked up so quickly through the scientific monitoring shows the strength of the Montreal Protocol. There's a very strong monitoring system. It's relatively well funded. There have been funds available for sectors like the foam sector, as is the main user of CSC-11, to change to other chemicals. So the Montreal Protocol is a force for good, but we must remain vigilant and we must crack down on any examples of illegal behaviour when we see them. Just one thing to add on that final question. One of the lessons here, you know, as we're thinking about greenhouse gases as well, is just the role that monitoring has played in this. You know, we wouldn't have known about this without the measurements that Steve and his group have made continuously. And so it's going to be really important, not only as we continue to monitor the progress with the Montreal Protocol, but also as we think about international climate agreements and restricting emissions of greenhouse gases, it's really important that we keep an eye on the atmosphere and keep making sure that the changes in the atmosphere reflect what we hope to see from these policy measures. Great. Well, thank you, Steve, Matt, Julian. Thanks very much for joining me. That was Leslie Hook talking to research scientists Steve Monsker and Matt Rigby and Julian Newman of the Environmental Investigations Agency in London. Thanks for listening. We'll be back with more news later this week, but in the meantime, do take a look at our latest subscriber offer, which you can find at ft.com offer50.
saving money when you start your next project today at Menards. Check out our great selection of garage and utility lighting options in stock, ready to take home today. We carry everything to help you illuminate whatever project you're working on. Shop garage and utility lighting products in store at your nearest Menards. You can also view all of our entire selection of lighting options today on Menards.com. Save big money at Menards. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.